0: I think it's it's a time for people to stand up really because the forces of impunity are on the march and those of us who've had the benefits of living in free societies need to defend them.
1: A warm welcome to Philanthropy Bites, where you get to deep dive into the lives of inspiring and visionary leaders, all of whom are working to change minds and move money to address some of the most critical issues of our time. I'm Cheryl Fafaria from J.P. Morgan's Philanthropy Centre, and this podcast is brought to you by us and the Marshall Institute at the London School of Economics, whose director, Professor Stefan Chambers, is our host. Our guest today is David Miliband, who's a former UK Foreign Secretary and now the International Rescue Committee's President and CEO, having himself come from a refugee family. Over to Stefan and David for more.
2: Warm welcome to David Miliband who joins us from New York. Welcome David. I'd like to start, if I may, just by talking a little bit about the the two halves of your career: the kind of politics and and diplomacy and foreign relations, and now the International Rescue Committee and what what bridges there are, what differences there are, what what things you can carry over from one to the other, and which things you definitely can't.
0: Thanks Stefan. Good to be Uh, with you. Um, I sometimes think about the two halves, as you put it, um, and generally like to think of it as two ends of the telescope. If you're in government or politics, you can see the big picture, but it's easy to forget or lose sight of uh, the individual stories. If you're running an NGO, you're focused on the individual stories, and the danger is that you lose sight of the big picture. And so uh, in both parts of my career, I've tried to hold on to both the macro and the micro the big picture and the individual stories and certainly in my role at the international rescue committee i try to remain rooted in the lives of the people that we're trying to help we're an organization that helps people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster survive recover and gain control of their lives we're not a general anti-poverty agency we help people who are thrust into vulnerability and danger uh, as a result of political failure I was just meeting last week at a government facility in uh, Virginia some of the 70,000 Afghans who are on their way to being resettled across the United States, and those individual stories that the person who's left their brother and mother and father in Kabul, uh, the person whose siblings are still in Mazar-e-Sharif, those are very important individual stories, but they have to be related to a bigger picture, a bigger picture of a global system that is under managed, a bigger picture of global political tension that is making a eunuch of the UN Security Council uh, a global uh, picture that is increasingly affected by the climate crisis. And I always think it's important to join um, the, the personal and the historical in that sense. Just for the avoidance of doubt, I'm under no illusions that if you're in government, you have much more power than if you are running an NGO. Uh, But the power that you have in government is mediated or is uh, limited uh, by the fact that you have to get a huge number of people to agree before you can do anything. Um, In an NGO, you've got less power but more, if you like, entrepreneurial flexibility. And certainly uh, my experience at the International Rescue Committee, which is now an organization that has grown from being more or less $430 million organization uh, seven or eight years ago, to being a, a billion-dollar organization now, with um, about thirty thousand staff in two hundred field sites around the world. My experience is that there is a, a flexibility and an entrepreneurialism uh, in the uh, charitable sector. I wonder if you, if you could pause
2: for the listeners. Um, uh, this whole question of of migration and displacement and refugees because very often we talk about uh, people as though they are one kind of displaced person when, of course, there are different kinds of displaced um, uh, people. And just to sketch the scale um, uh, 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 of displacement and and what that means in people's lives.
0: Good. Well, I'm I'm happy to do that. I think you're absolutely right. It's important to try and be precise, because there are more people on the move than at any time in human history. But the majority of them, probably three quarters, are on the move for economic reasons, predominantly, uh, rather than uh, political reasons. And the focus of the International Rescue Committee, dating back to our foundation by Einstein um, in the 1930s, uh, our focus is on people who are forced to move, not people who choose to move. Uh, The phrase forced displacement is actually used in the academic literature. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, But a refugee is someone for whom it's not safe to go home to their own country. There's someone who cross a border uh, as a result of fear or persecution or conflict. And there are about 35 million people who've crossed borders out of fear of uh, danger, uh, of conflict, Um, uh, At the moment And there's about 45 million people Who are what are called internally displaced In other words they're homeless in their own country Again for political reasons um, But they haven't yet crossed a border And so in total about 80, 82, 84 million people Around the world That's more than 1% of the world's population For the first time since World War II Are forcibly displaced In other words they're homeless as a result of Political meltdown in their own Uh, town or uh, community or country. Uh, These are people who predominantly in the case of refugees are sheltered in poor countries, not in rich countries, because most refugees go next door rather than go to Europe or America. About 85% of the world's refugees are in poor countries, poor or lower middle income countries. So Bangladesh, uh, Ethiopia, uh, refugees from Eritrea, uh, South Sudanese refugees going to Uganda, and obviously Syria, the world's biggest refugee crisis, Syrian refugees in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, obviously a lower-middle-income uh, country. Um, Europe and the U.S. have relatively small numbers of uh, refugees. If you talk to people in Africa or Asia about European or American discussion of a re- refugee quote-unquote crisis, they say, well, if you want to see a crisis, come and, come and see what we're dealing with uh, compared to the numbers in, in America or in in Europe. One, one other point that might be useful context for your listeners is that the image of a refugee is someone in a refugee camp. And obviously, in Einstein's day, most refugees were in refugee camps. Actually, today, most refugees are in urban areas. Urbanization is a process that affects forcibly displaced people, not just uh, the rest of us. About 60% of refugees are in urban areas, not in camps. About. Uh, of that 35 million people who are, have crossed borders as a result of political conflict and, and failure, um, only 5 million, maybe 6 million, are in refugee camps. So that's an important part of thinking through what's the changed role of a, an organisation like mine who's trying to help people not just survive but thrive. The modern displacement experience is much, much longer. and We're looking at intergenerational refugee flows and so, you know, if you go to a large refugee camp, and you, you know, I had this experience myself in Dadab, it used to be the world's largest refugee camp in eastern Kenya, I asked a young woman there um, whether she thought she'd ever go home to Somalia. and She said, what do you mean go home? I was born here. And so uh, the, the length of displacement is also important as one thinks about what's the role of an organization like mine, just saying, well, keeping people alive is, is the job, that's too minimalist. If you're talking about 10, 15, 20 years, if you're talking about multiple generations, education, employment, sustainable solutions are based more on more than simply keeping people alive till they go home, because in the end, very few people go home.
2: Empathy or concern are relatively easy to generate, but real solutions are obviously extremely difficult to generate. And if we have in our mind someone several countries away in a camp, um, uh, who's only just arrived? We may we may be, as it were, um, misrepresenting the nature of the question. Now that you've sketched what the world looks like from that kind of displacement perspective, to to the ways people might be thinking about uh, addressing some of these questions. You talked a minute ago about. Um, uh, how flexible and entrepreneurial your own organisation can be. And I know you have some quite interesting examples of how um, uh, corporate philanthropy has stepped up. Um, and I wonder if you might talk about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to preface any discussion of solutions by saying that the real solution has got to be political, not just humanitarian. I mean, the real quote unquote solution to a refugee crisis, so you have to deal with the origins of it. The fact that refugees and displaced people come from political failure and diplomatic failure, I think, is important. Notwithstanding that, I think that uh, the definition of "quote unquote" solutions from a humanitarian point of view has changed. Partly because of the urban um, displacement issue, partly because of the length of displacement. From the corporate uh, side, uh, there's a couple of points that I think are important. First of all, governments have a tendency to be risk-averse, and the the worry of a minister is always that something goes wrong, and uh, we're proud of trying things that might go wrong, because if you don't try anything that might go wrong, you'll never find anything that goes right. Um, so, when it came to uh, developing our online support system for information provision for refugees, it's called Signpost in, in English, it's called Quentanos uh, in um, Spanish, there's an Arabic version of it, we'd, we'd like to roll it out more broadly, we went to the corporate sector to say, look, we know that refugees arriving in Greece in 2015 The first thing they do is they take out their mobile phone and they and then what they get on there when they switch it on is it's all in Greek. Well, that's no good if you're um, if you're from Syria. So we went to the um, uh, tech sector. Um, We went to people in the travel industry, actually. And we said, look, we need to, first of all, have a billboard so that refugees can get information. We also need an information exchange so that refugees can tell each other who to trust, who not to trust. Um, We also need, uh, eventually, to be able to give real-time support to people who are on the run. And as it happens, just uh, the day before this podcast, um, I was on a call with our team in Latin America, in the northern Central America, where we have this online support system. If you're a woman on the run in northern El Salvador with a kid who's running away from gangs, you can type in, hey, this is where I am, where can I go? And we can get you real-time answers. That's been developed um, with the corporate sector, so we need to go from innovation to scaling. And whenever people come to me and say, "Well, have you, can I invest in some new ideas?" I say, "Well, yeah, but there are some old <laughs> there are some innovations that haven't yet been scaled." But nonetheless, one one part of the corporate added value is on the risk uh, taking. The second is on speed. Uh, the Afghan crisis shows this, but so do the crises in uh, Ethiopia and Yemen, where we're working. Uh, it's, it can take time for a government system to, to get itself mobilized, but uh, problems don't wait, and we need to deploy. Uh, we need to deploy fast. So there's speed um, that I think is an important part of the corporate offer. There's also skills. We've got pro bono legal advice that comes in because people are trying to get citizenship. And there are. I always say to... Um, to, to corporates, look, of course we want your money, but the, um, the other thing is we want a 360-degree relationship where your people can be seconded into us, where your skills can be of use, where we can offer a, a real meeting of minds and sharing of ideas. And I think that's important as well, because often with the government sector, our relationship is we're effectively, we're delivering on a contract, they have certain inputs they want to see ticked off we're we 're trying to say to our corporate partners think over a longer term let 's think about your assets in the round and think about the problems we 're solving in the round and see what we can do together so go 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 back david to the not invented here
2: um, uh, 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 problem, um, which I think you meant really uh, when you you were talking about uh, state solutions as opposed to private sector solutions, but one of the commonest critiques of philanthropy is that philanthropists whether they are firms or individuals or foundations want to want to build their own solution um are you saying just for the complete avoidance of doubt are you saying that there are ways of addressing problems that are best in class um in this case about displacement that should always be the first port of call for someone
0: wishing to engage with a problem well the short answer to that is yes um if you you come to me and you say look i've got a million dollars um, or even if I've got $5 million um, and I want it to have most impact, I won't say to you, let's design a whole new boutique programme. I-, I could say to you, here are five different programmes. I've got an education programme in Bangladesh that I'm ready to scale up. I've got this signpost programme in Central America that I want to make as a genuine regional uh, solution. I've got amazing work with women survivors of domestic violence, but I can't get funding to roll it out and I need to be able to do that. I've got employment and business startup programs that we know how to make work in humanitarian settings and the innovation's been done, but it's too boutique. I want to roll it out. So I think if you come to me and you say, I've got $100 million, as the MacArthur Foundation did, and they, are, they, they didn't come to me, they, they came to an open competition. There were thousands of applicants. We applied with the Sesame Workshop uh, to... Uh, with a program to tackle trauma, toxic stress among three to eight-year-olds. Now, they had $100 million on the table, and that's it's worth innovating for $100 million. And so you had two great organizations, IRC and uh, Sesame Workshop. We came together with an evidence-based solution for how to help three to eight-year-olds in the Middle East, whether they be in Syria or in Jordan or Lebanon or uh, Iraq, uh, Really try to come to terms with the trauma they 'd been through, which could help them for the rest of their lives now that 's an innovation worth doing because you can really then set best practice, set a gold standard, roll it out elsewhere but I, I want to be honest with you that the tendency to be attracted by novelty rather than scaling an impact is a problem in the government sector but it 's also a problem in the uh, in the corporate sector as well. And, you know, we've got to be honest about that. We, we, we've set ourselves out to be hard-headed humanitarians, hard-headed, I mean, big-hearted, but hard-headed in the sense of we'll tell you where we can have most impact. You can go, any of your listeners can go onto the internet and type in IRC outcomes and evidence framework, and they'll see a map of the outcomes we're trying to pursue, what we know about breast practice, also what we don't know. And what you'll see is exactly what our country directors see when they're figuring out what are the right solutions, um, whether it be in El Salvador or in uh, Somalia uh, or in Lebanon?
2: I couldn't agree more. And, it, and it's a recurring theme in Philanthropy Bites uh, and in our work in philanthropy generally, this this notion that you, that, that, that many very honourably motivated people's first instinct is to come up with a, with a novel solution. And their second instinct is to figure out whether that solution Works And then their third instinct is to figure out who else is doing work that is already proven to be good. And it would be very nice, I think, if we could somehow reverse, reverse that triad and make it the other way around. So I try to ask everyone this. Um, uh, and and uh, assume that, that I've followed everything you've said. Um, and I am uh, deeply moved by childhood malnutrition. Okay, But I'm a private actor but but uh, listening to you has made me want to allocate 90% of my net assets to to somehow leaning into that question what do i do and you're not allowed to say as it were you know support irc
0: If you're an individual who cares about malnutrition, you need to join with others to make a difference. What the International Rescue Committee has done, with private funds, we've developed, through our health and and research and innovation teams, a combined protocol for severe and acute malnutrition, which can be used not by doctors and nurses, but by care workers and parents in the community to diagnose severe acute or moderate acute malnutrition and treat it. So there is actually a solution, and we're running randomised control trials in Kenya, Mali, and uh, South Sudan. Uh, we're showing how these community health workers can make a, a, a difference. We're desperate to bring more people onto that, into that drive because the world spends $280 million a year on trying to treat acute malnutrition, but 80% of people are not being helped by it. So in that example, you're motivated... Individual does need to come to the IRC website or send me an email and uh, join our uh, train uh, on that. More broadly, um, I think that, I mean, the Pope said in 2014 that he went to Lampedusa where uh, Syrians were arriving and he said, the world is suffering the globalization of indifference, which is a brilliant phrase. I mean, it's really uh, superb. I said in my TED talk that I don't know if Uh, You're allowed to argue with the Pope, but I don't think indifference is quite the right uh, word. Um, I think people know more about suffering that's going on around the world, but they don't know how to make a difference. And so it's not indifference, but it's not knowing how to make a difference. And that is where um, joining with others is important. It's where, and and remember, crowdfunding and crowd organizing is much easier than it was 20 years ago. Let's let's state the obvious. Um, But voice is important. Um, if you're an employer, um, making a difference through your employment practices and helping people who've been displaced, in this case, what we're talking about, um, giving them a chance. Um, but I think it's it's a time for people to stand up, really, because the forces of impunity are on the march. And those of us who've had the benefits of living in free societies need to defend them. I nearly always ask this, too, in Philanthropy Bites um, –
2: Uh, and particularly of you i think so so the climate crisis um looks looks likely dramatically to increase um uh the displacement of people okay uh you know far and far it is already and it looks set to increase that to potentially um uh, really really startling numbers so i wonder whether you think that the work of the IRC, and by extension the work of philanthropists and scholars and so on, um, have necessarily, to, to, uh, has necessarily to be climate work, or whether you think that that's too,
0: um, a too big a statement. No, I, I, I do agree with that, and I don't just say that. We've changed our constitution to reflect the climate crisis in our mission, because uh, the climate crisis is a conflict multiplier, and by being a conflict multiplier, it's a dis- forced displacement uh, multiplier. And so we are... I think that the the climate world, the climate crisis world and the humanitarian world haven't yet joined. And one of the things we're trying to do is is do that. We've got some work going on about how to promote climate resilience in fragile states or conflict-affected states. We'd like to do more of that um, uh, programming. But there's hardly a sphere of um, national or international life that isn't climate-affected. And uh, we are uh, secondarily affected. I think most of the people who are displaced by climate change will actually be internally displaced, i.e. within their own countries, rather than refugees who cross borders. I mean, if you think about Bangladesh, people will be moving north in Bangladesh rather than immediately moving to India. There's no question that resource stress, especially water resource stress, is a conflict multiplier. Um, Land use is a conflict uh, driver. And the climate crisis is part of it. And, And our... Clients are living with it twice over. They're living with it because it's happening around them in the Sahel or elsewhere, and they are living with it in the second sense that they are um, in systems that are very vulnerable to the changes in climate. David, my
2: last question is 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 perhaps a is perhaps a strange question, but it, but it it occurs to me, um, interviewing um, um, uh, people who do important work. That the the reason the work is important is because it addresses a particular threat or a kind of crisis or a or a, a completely unjust equilibrium, and it's very rare um, that that I interview people and ask them for the for the upside story, the good news story, because their lives are are committed to addressing things which are clearly not not happy stories but I wonder if the the example of displacement and of climate suggests that 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 we need to get better at telling positive stories too and whether that is part of your
0: work or not Um, well I mean if we only tell negative stories then we'll all get unbelievably depressed and 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 give up so that 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 I think is not um, is not good equally I I don't like happy talk I mean you learn in politics or in diplomacy, a happy talk that, that that tells you everything's good when it's not is a problem. I mean, it's a problem in business as well. I think uh, y- you never want to be an organization where people don't tell you the facts. Now, having said that, I think that one of the most rejuvenating aspects of my job is that every... Every client I talk to has a trauma story, but a lot of clients are still able to have hope and courage and commitment and resilience. And so you should take strength from that. And we've got to do a much better story, I think, at helping our clients tell their stories. That's what's inspiring. Not listening to my speeches, but listening to the story of the baker from Damascus who's now relocated to Silver Spring, Maryland, and is able to rebuild his and his family's life. The story of the South Sudanese refugee woman who lost her sister in an unspeakable attack, but whose child has graduated from Kampala University and wants to go back to work on public health in South Sudan, that those are the uh, human stories of renewal. Maybe I, I don't like this sort of are you an optimist, are you a pessimist? I mean, there's there's real life, and real life has trauma and tragedy, crime and tragedy, um, but real life also has resilience and renewal, and that's what I try to hold on to.
2: David, thank you so much. Thank you for that um, that note of renewal. Um, uh, you and IRC do incredibly important work, and we're enormously grateful uh, uh, to have heard you on Philanthropy Bites. Thank
0: you. Thanks very much.
1: I love that optimistic note of finding pathways towards resilience and renewal amidst the important work that IRC does for people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster. Join us next time to hear from Richard Curtis, who is the mastermind behind Blackadder, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Love Actually, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones's Diary and many more. And whose advocacy and impact through his work with Comic Relief and Make Poverty History have been nothing short of phenomenal.